Uh, this is Matt and Hillary and it's marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary that's right and it's the podcast where we are reading through the Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson exactly and we are now uh, in green Mars we're in the middle yes we're in green Mars and we're in the middle of part seven what what is to be done this is part two of our discussion of what is to be done Right. Part two of our discussion of part seven of Green Mars, volume two in the Mars trilogy. It's extremely complicated. <laughs> I'm not, I'm no math major, Hillary. Oh, I know. Leave uh, all these either. numbers out of it. Uh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. Um, you're right. We left off at about uh, the midpoint of it around, by my count, around 377, 378. I think that's right. We Right after uh, Nadia has her, her dream of dolphins. Flying, flying through the air flying dolphins which uh pre pre sages presages pre uh visualizes the vision of uh <laughs> it pre visualizes william, william fort yeah uh, flying right, through right. the air uh all wet and naked the ancient dolphin just the way <laughs> <laughs> william fort the ancient dolphin um and uh so we're going to continue with this uh conversation but first we right. wanted to uh, recap something that we feel we've uh, were negligent about talking about last time. Right. Well, or I mean, I think I mean I have no memory of what we talked about. So Neither do I. Have maybe listened like to it completely. But I I feel like we did talk about how we both like this chapter. I know that this was a part of the books that I was very obsessed with um, the first time I read them, and I feel like we talked about how we both like this chapter because it's about writing a constitution. But I feel like we didn't maybe answer the question of like why that is something that we feel drawn mm-hmm. to. I mean, because in some ways that shouldn't just be like an obvious thing. Like, oh, cool, I'm reading a science fiction novel and in the middle of it, they spend a whole chapter like is having it... a long series of political debates about what a constitution would look like. Yeah, a constitutional convention. Yeah. 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 Um, do you want to start or do you, I never, I had not thought of that. Why? Question. I haven't thought, I haven't pondered the why of why I like it, but I, I can give you a, a kind of um, purely instinctive intellectual answer. That that sounds good. Um, because it's because it almost is. It. I mean, we talked about how it's sort of the center of the trilogy too. Mm-hmm. I think it is the utopian center of the trilogy um, because it is a moment of like, okay, let's put all this bullshit aside and actually talk about what we want. Yeah. Um, and do it in a way where uh, we are respecting each other's differences in space and there's a process involved um and that there is some structure but not so much that people feel left out or something um and that um what is the what is the phrase like a true socialist utopia would be like an endless meeting Uh (laughs) um this seems like a really utopian moment in that like it's just people for a month or something meeting and talking about the society that they want to create um, and uh, 
somehow food is being taken care of. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, garbage collection or something. Right. Right. But, um, at the end of the day, uh, it does feel like, yeah, this, why, why, why don't we do this? Why doesn't somebody do this in a way? Yeah. Uh, because obviously the system is so screwed up here on our planet right now, as we speak, uh, in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) confirmation (laughs) hearings. Um, yeah, it feels like, special it feels like why wouldn't we do this yeah yeah i i totally agree i mean i think you you captured a lot of the things that i really like about this um that um uh and and i think that this is um this is so exactly the kind of thing that i think um robinson's books are really brilliant at doing because this is both incredibly special mm-hmm. um and unique and distinctive and strange um and it's also totally ordinary yeah. like nothing extraordinary happens no, here yeah. you know yeah i mean and you can i mean and that i think uh i mean that to me is also like that is to me kind of a deeply science fictional thing to <laughs> do and it maybe it doesn't seem like the most science fictiony parts of these books but um part of what i think this chapter does is it does sort of make you think again as like these novels ask you to think about over and over again i mean one um we human beings um not under conditions of our own choosing have made the world in the way that it is Mm -hmm. um and we go on making it even though sometimes and often actually we don't feel that we have chosen or we didn't choose the circumstances that we're making it but we do go on reproducing life um and we do have this we do have these capacities like the capacity to think about what we are and what we want and what we need and what we should have and to think about what a better way to live together is and we do have the capacity to talk to talk about that stuff and to begin to think about what sort of actions should come out of that talk. And that's all that's happening here. I mean, you know, and it, it's it's rich and complicated and it's full of all the entanglements of, you know, care that the first 100 have for each other and all the complicated generational distinction and all of the distinction among parties. I mean, there's nothing that's easy about this. But at the same time, this is a, you know, why not? Why not? Right? right? Why not? Why not do this? Yes, um, I think, uh, especially when you reflect on the, I mean, the generalized and growing awareness of how screwed up our own system is right now, and how miserable people are just going to work, doing their daily grind, and, and reproducing themselves, like reproducing the systems that they are finding them are miserable in, um, the complete lack of a mass refusal um, and, a, and a kind of mass decision, spontaneous decision to simply stop um, and the impossibility for, you know, the, the impossible, the cat is uh, drinking Hillary's water. It's Louise. Louise is drinking Hillary's water. The impossibility or the seeming impossibility to even imagine the idea that we would just go on a general strike um, and, you know, sit in the middle of Lakeshore Drive until, uh, say, Rahm Emanuel quit, which actually hey. turned out it happened. <laughs> there was good news this week. <laughs> right. There was some good news this week. 
Um, uh, it seems, yes. I mean, I think that labeling it science fictional uh, is really a, a, a good way to label it. Or, or you, or you know, what you were saying, utopian, right? Yeah. Because the, because what should be extraordinary to us is, I mean, so you know, when you're thinking about, I don't know, like the cool like developments in materials science that get us to being able to create something like a a tether for a space elevator, mm-hmm. uh, or artificial skin, or or artificial skin, or animalless meat, uh, <laughs> right? Animalless meat, or uh, you know, whatever uh, those those sorts of things that exist at the level of. Um, new technology or new inventions or we can tell a story about where do those come from and and I think often that's a big pleasure in reading science fiction Ooh, so you know this part of that invention you know graphene or whatever Mm -hmm. is something we know about Mm -hmm. but but what what else would have to happen in Mm -hmm. order to get there Uh, you know the life extension technologies in here are a good example you know like um, several steps ahead of where we are and yet at the same time they have a kind of plausibility and you can imagine it right um but I think the the idea, if you know, we were to just present the idea that what needs to happen is some kind of, uh, you know, a global constitutional convention, mm-hmm. um, well, that would be immediately uh, greeted as unrealistic. And indeed, in some ways, it is unrealistic. I right. Mean, how, right. I mean, how would we do that? Right. You know, immediately the logistics would be the problem. Yeah. But the point here is something like. Um, you know, the point is that, like, what the utopian is is not some, like, crazy, is not perfection or some crazy thing you could never get to. It's doing it's doing the thing that yeah. seems to be unrealistic yeah. or acknowledging the capacity or also acknowledging that sometimes it's things that happen on the terrain, on terrain that feels much more ordinary. Yeah. Right? The terrain of ordinary life yeah. that could produce uh, extraordinary transformation. Yeah, I was going to say um, just... How, how would you do it? The logistics would be, that would be the first thing people would start arguing about. But one way you would do it was would be to just start doing it, right? Uh, like uh-huh. not right, to actually, right. you know, not to plan too much. You know, the Swiss come in here with their form without content and then a bunch of people say, like pick up those tools and sort of figure it out and make them work for themselves. I don't want the cat to drink my water. No, no, um, Louise. No offense, Louise. Um, but, uh, it sort of goes back again to, uh, for me, uh, I was thinking again about the quote that I read from Hannah Arendt a few weeks ago mm-hmm. of don't hope, basically you can't hope for the past or the future. Uh, like anybody, if you're hoping for a meteor to hit the earth or for some magical return to normalcy, you're going to be hoping for a long time. The alternative is you just simply have to build the present that you want. And if the present that you want is having a meeting and reordering society, then that's what you should just start doing. Yeah. Um, the trick is you can't just make an individual decision about that. There has to be some kind of mass consciousness that evolves and uh, some basic baseline agreements between huge groups of people to initiate those, those meetings. Right. Or, or maybe just processes that would allow us to explore and excavate the kinds of agreement that we do already yeah. have. Right. right. I mean, I was just I was thinking about this just driving over the amount of agreement that happens on the road without anybody actually communicating in words. Yeah, right. You know, merging uh right of way, left turns, all this kind of stuff. It's perfectly organic. No one, I mean, you're you're given the rules when you're 16 or 15 and then, you know, God willing, you don't get into an accident. <laughs> uh but sometimes accidents happen and they're called accidents for a reason and you know, 
that that all happens. It just, it works. It's that, you know, anyway. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, and it does seem like this, one of the things that this chapter is about is about thinking about both how do you produce something like a shared consciousness or, or less grandly, just agreement, yeah. right? How do you produce agreement? Consensus. Um, how do you produce consensus? Or not even consensus, but mm-hmm. the kind of agreement where, um, you know, there are variations within the, the agreement, but you, you know, you get to the place where you have some kind of solution that lets you move forward. So we both, the chapter both has questions about that. And also that sort of other thing, which is, but what is it that we actually already agree on without talking about it? You know, what is it that we actually, what are the things that we share um, as human, as human creatures, right? Yeah. As in this case, as inhabitants of Mars, yes. But also the chapter is very much about what are things that we share as the kind of life form that we are. What's a base level of human thriving, basically. Yeah. And that that might be something... uh, that's there in all of us. Yeah. And it's kind of strange to think, I mean, we we live, I think, um, yeah, I mean, we live in a world that just is constantly making claims about human nature. I mean, it's not hard to, you know, we, we you know, about what life is, about what is core to the human person. We hear those things all the time. And yet they're not, um, uh, it, rarely do we have the sense of, um, that we might actually, experience in our daily lives our commonality right as opposed to you know like having that be attributable to like a particular ideological form or whatever well so much of it uh, of uh that experience of of being human or or the kind or it is is told to us is drilled into us Mm -hmm. rather than uh by the media essentially um and like our political betters or whatever um rather than us being simply given allowed the time to experience it for ourselves and to like articulate it in a way. And that's also kind of one of the utopian promises yeah. of this chapter is like allowing a bunch of people in a safe space um, yeah. to just say what they mean and what they feel um, with no fear of like violent retribution right. or being expelled or something right. like that. Right. Right. And that doesn't mean that there's not arguing. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that there's not disagreement. And it also doesn't mean that there's not bad feeling, right. which I think is one of the very, I think that's such an insightful thing in this chapter. The, the, it's So there's a couple of things that, uh, yeah, the, the, basically the part, which we'll, we can just talk about it right now at the end when they come to their sort of seven points um, it's met with a rather tepid response. Yeah, yeah. Like there's some, there's some applause and there's some hooting, but it doesn't last a very long time. Um, Nergal especially is like puzzled by people's responses. Yeah. Like after a couple of days of everybody talking about the seven points, they're actually surprised that they agree on a lot. And Nergal's like, what, why are you surprised? Like we literally wrote down what you were saying. Right, right, right. Um, and, and, and he's, he's kind of annoyed at the fact that people are still arguing even after this, right? So it's a very, it's a very anticlimactic moment. It's anticlimactic. In a lot of ways. Yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to say was that um, the fact, the, 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 perspe- the point of view of this chapter being through Nadia is so important because as the person who's floating between meetings and not the most vociferous, not the most opinionated one, but the one who's actually just, working to sort of facilitate things and feed art and Nergal and make sure they go to bed mm-hmm. and just make sure things run smoothly. 
it's a really interesting perspective to have because you don't have a person like Arkady um, in one of these meetings who's who's the the biggest mouth, right? The one who's arguing the most, the one with the most ego at stake, essentially. Right. She is what she's as a builder. I mean, I don't think it's not coincidental that she's a builder she is the one who lost a finger she is the yeah. work, working hands of mars right and her ghost finger comes back her to, ghost to tingle in this exactly chapter. yeah i think it's not coincidental that it's her who's the center of this uh of not only this chapter but this process of um putting aside her own ego and 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 uh intervening when she finds it necessary but having a, a bigger project going on which is to basically uh, uh, grease the grease the gears, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she also feels um, anxiety and disappointment, and has a lot of moments of feeling like everything is going wrong. This isn't everything work. is going yeah. wrong. We can't do this. Um, yeah, I agree. Having it centered in Nadia is is also. I mean, also she's a woman, right. and and I think that it matters that the context, the the like site of the conference is Dorsa Brevia, which is a matriarchal mm-hmm. society right. on Mars. Um, and, and a matriarchal space. It's um, a it's a cave. And it's a and exactly. It's a, a cave. Um, uh, you know, a, a warm, damp cave, right? <laughs> uh, and I mean, I mean, which can also make us think of a lot of other things too, right? That can there are mystical connotations, there are spiritual connotations, and of course, there is the sort of the Neolithic version of you know the ways in which our human lives mm. began. Mm-hmm. Um, having to shelter inside caves, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but but I think it mattered, I think all of that matters very much to the context of the chapter. And in some ways, I think we could think about how um, uh, those kind of context, those sort of surrounds to the debates also change the way that we should think about the debates, right? That these are, these are not, um, if they're not primarily people in the, you know, wonderful um, Arcadi mode of just saying like, this is, this is what politics is, mm-hmm. right? This is what it is mm-hmm. to live. Right. And um, they're not primarily philosophical. Um, they're debates that people have, have actual material stakes in um, and felt stakes. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think one of the reasons that when, uh, Nergal and Art present the points, they present the charter, right. Yeah. It's the people's charter. Um, uh, that it's kind of underwhelming to everybody is because they've actually done a really good yeah, job of right. hearing what everybody is yeah. saying. And thus, when they say them, it all sounds like common sense. Common sense, sense. Exactly. That's and, exactly what I was going to say. And that's, and that's what has come out, right? Yeah. That there is a common sense on Mars or a shared, a shared mm-hmm. good sense on Mars, a shared sense of what it is. Um, and of course, the chapter doesn't stop there because it, it actually ends with this sort of scene of like uh, weird Mars spirituality, which I will get to talk about. But again, I think, um, and which again, I think is a piece that sort of complicates how we think about that. But yeah, what what has come out of this? It turns out there is a shared sense of mm-hmm. how things are. There is a structure of feeling. And like when you come, you know, when you come face to face with the thing, you know, the default, the baseline, the thing that we do all think, the thing that we all think that we need, it's not surprising, right? right? I mean, which is the thing about utopia. Right. When you, it's not going to be like some big surprise. Right, right. It's going to probably be different and weirder and harder than we thought, but we're also going to be like, oh yeah, that's a better way to live. It feel, it'll feel natural. Yeah, It'll exactly. feel natural in a way that other exactly. things that, that are 
that the non-utopia that we live in doesn't. Yeah, right. I just tweeted out, I think last night, a um, on our account, Marooned on Mars. Wait, Mar- podcast, on, podcast Mars, on Mars. At podcast on Mars. At, po- at podcast. Um, <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson himself just recently wrote a piece for like a Yale or Princeton blog or something about um, food and eating uh, in the utopia or something, or just like better ways to he basically uh, it's called um enough is as good as a feast mm. nice and he ta- describes the kind of um the communal living area that he lives in in davis california which is just a subdivision of a it's just a subdivision but it's organized in a specific way so there's communally owned uh property that they can farm organically um everybody owns their own house but there's just like big open spaces and um a lot of the people there, it's like a thousand people and not everybody has kids, but the people who have kids meet each other through their kids. And then every Thursday for like years, they would just have a big open potluck where they would just gather and eat. And he describes how it was a lot easier than anybody thought it would be because nobody organized anything. They just sort of, we said, let's have a potluck and okay. And then people brought what they brought. And there was usually not enough to go around or like, there was, we ran out of food all the time, but there was enough. It wasn't, we weren't gorging ourselves like you do under capitalism. Um, and it, and he basically describes how it felt very natural and easy. It was just a completely leaderless event that happened every single Thursday for many, many years. So that, um, that's lovely. That's yeah, lovely. And great. I mean, and it's such a, you know, I mean, uh, most utopias, as I say, all utopias, but most literary utopias anyway, include an account about there are accounts about eating yeah. right i mean particularly communal communal dining is uh you know from moore's utopia on mm-hmm. is a significant utopian piece um and part of what's great about that is that um i think that something that like robinson is really alive to um as certain other utopian writers are really alive to um you know we've talked about before his interest in these books in the interest these books have in the body bodies somatic experience bodily experience um but also in pleasure you know and in kind of the you know not pleasure as some big uh conceptual thing but pleasure as like having a good dinner at the end of the day or the uh, the unpleasure like in some of those chapters where they're like driving around in rover oh the the end of red mars where they're in that endlessly long drive in the rovers um and they're running low on food you know and the the pain the like feeling in people's stomachs Mm -hmm. right you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. um that stuff is important right that's part of what you know not in some stupid way what makes us human but you know when we think about what it would mean to live together better sometimes it would mean sharing things with other people and other times it would mean getting to be alone (laughs) but in any case we're gonna you know we're still gonna need to eat right i mean that and and it's never gonna go away we're still gonna take pleasure in eating right and Um, it's oftentimes better to eat with people than alone at least some of the time yes okay yeah exactly well it's good to have options it's good to have options (laughs) um i should we look at the the um do you want to jump to the... The six points or seven. seven points? Let's jump to the seven points. Let's sort of jump to the end of the the middle of the end or the end of the middle, the middle of the end, whatever it is. 
389. Uh, and figure out what their work points for a go for a Martian government look like. Um, yeah, and I, I think we could talk about this, and then we could talk a bit about Praxis, because we haven't talked about uh, William Fort showing up other than as a bringing some new surfing yeah, technology. technology. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to talk about William Fort and his description of the mm. metanationals and, and the situation on Earth. Um, so... One, what we were um, thinking about doing was reading this, um, but replacing the word Mars with the word Earth. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Yeah. So uh, on 389.1, Earth society will be composed of many different cultures. It is better to think of it as a world rather than a nation or nations, I guess. (laughs) Freedom of religion and cultural practice must be guaranteed. No one culture or group of cultures should be able to dominate the rest. Two. Within this framework of diversity, it still must be guaranteed that all individuals on Earth have certain inalienable rights, including the material basics of existence, health care, education, and legal equality. Three, the land, air, and water of Earth are in the common stewardship of the human family and cannot be owned by any individual or group. Four, the fruits of an individual's labor belong to the individual and cannot be appropriated by another individual or group. At the same time, human labor on earth is part of a communal enterprise given to the common good. The earth economic system must reflect these facts, balancing self-interest with the interests of society at large. Five, the meta-national, or maybe we could say corporate order ruling (laughs) earth, is currently (laughs) incapable of incorporating the previous two principles and cannot be applied here and should not be applied here on earth in its place we must enact an economics based on ecological science the new goal of earth economics is not sustainable development but a sustainable prosperity for the entire biosphere did you add the word new to that uh yeah because yeah because we have i mean you're talking about earth yeah i'm talking about earth okay yeah I'm just ad, I'm ad-libbing. The mask is off, folks. <laughs> this book's an allegory. It didn't really happen. Six, the earth landscape itself has certain rights of place which must be honored. The goal of our environmental alterations should therefore be minimalist and eco-poetic, reflecting the values of the areophany. Would that be like the teriophany? I guess so, yeah. It is, in, it is suggested that the goal of environmental alterations be to make only that portion of earth lower than the five-kilometer contour human viable. Higher elevations, constituting some 30% of the planet, would then remain in something resembling their primeval conditions, existing as natural wilderness zones. Seven, the habitation of Earth is a unique historical process as it is the first inhabitation of any planet by humanity. It's so cool when you <laughs> replace Mars with Earth in that sentence. Like, it's really, yeah. As such, it should be undertaken in a spirit of reverence for this planet and for the scarcity of life in the universe. What we do here will set precedence for further human inhabitation of the solar system and will uh reform the human relationship to earth's environment as well thus earth occupies a special place in history and this should be remembered when we make the necessary decisions concerning life here i think it's really cool to replace uh the word mars with earth thank you for that suggestion uh hillary uh you're welcome i think that (laughs) but i think it you know i mean in some of those you have to do some like awkward alterations but it also i i do think that these points 
you know, these are not hard points to agree no. to. Yeah. Um, and as with, um, I mean, as with the Martians, I mean, the hardest ones are are thinking about those questions about uh, our relationship to the biosphere, our relationship to Earth as planet, right? right? I mean, it's interesting to think they that scheme, which I mean, so they they point six, which is the like will reserve um, above a certain elevation yeah. won't be terraformed. Right. Um, obviously, there's not a direct equivalent on Earth, but there is a sort of question on Earth about, I mean, you know, uh, we don't, I think, have the option of preserving anything, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pristine from human touch. But at the same time, it, this seems to be, you know, a sort of um, a question that we do have to wrestle with, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, I mean, national parks are great, uh, but um, that doesn't seem to be an adequate way to allow for the life worlds of all different species to thrive yeah. together, right? There's also a, I mean, national parks too are, are a technological Indeed. thing. Indeed, Terra, the terraforming of Terra. Yeah, there's a great book by Richard Grusin about national parks as a technology um, for basically producing nature or or wilderness or whatever. Right, the idea, what we, what we think nature is. Yeah, um, and... It's Yosemite. It's Yosemite. And like, as long as we let that be pristine, we can like screw up the rest of the right. earth. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, a non-reproductive, rehabilitative, uh, uh, more um, ecologically friendly utopian relationship with the earth would involve not having to, uh, you know, block off sections. Right, make preserves. Make preserves. It would just become natural that, oh, hey, hey, maybe don't, throw your garbage there or <laughs> right, cut those right. trees down over there. Right. Or, or we would begin to think about how in, you know, nature and culture are entangled yeah. in basically everything yeah. that we look at. Right. Um, and therefore we have to start thinking in a different way about what it means to um, li live with, right. Mm -hmm. And thinking differently about what it means to live with others when those others that we have to consider include not only, you know, Louise, the cat drinking out of my water glass, <laughs> but, and the squirrels in the tree outside, but also the tree. Um, and also the things that are harder to understand, like, I don't know, the particulate matter in the air. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's not talk about that. Uh, um, yeah. Anyway, I think it's, it's such a great, um, and as, um, as we were saying, you know, those, those points are received in a kind of like, yeah, okay. Um, sort of way and it's Nadia who's like let's have a round of applause yeah, for right. them uh, because we know that it took an incredible amount of work to write those things down and they had to listen to all of these conversations they had to synthesize Nergal and Art did and yet when people hear it in most cases they're basically just like yeah this is what we think yeah no and, duh you know nobody nobody gets to own the land water and air right Everybody does have a basic right, and the basic rights are to um, the material bases of basics of existence, to healthcare, to education, mm -hmm. um, and to equality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's not yeah, that hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. Just take money from the bankers, and we can do all <laughs> of this stuff. Oh yeah, it's really simple. It's all. It's all here. It's all here. Um, I I really like number seven when you replace Mars with Earth. Uh, because the habitation of Earth is a unique historical process and yeah. is the first inhabitation of a planet by humanity. Um, and I feel like it really, 
it's it's that feeling you get every once in a while where you just you know where or I won't say you I'll speak for myself when you know I just see a bus going by with a, just a black cloud of smoke coming out of it or us you know paving a new like people paving a new tract of land or demol or like cutting down what it like you know, clear cutting the Amazon or something. And I just think to myself, we're really fucking this up. Yeah. And I mean, by we like humanity is really fucking up this opportunity to like exist and be, and be, con- be the consciousness of the universe. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really uh, sad because it's the only chance, you know, that exists out there. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's easier in some ways for us to imagine yeah. being on Mars right. and thinking, oh, this is a unique right. historical, uh, right. this is a, a uniquely historical, a unique historical process. It's easier for us to imagine that than it is for us to sort of live in a an awareness of and a willingness to act toward that awareness uh, of the uniqueness of our life on Earth. Because it would mean having to change your life. It would mean having to, like, really being conscious of the fact that this is a unique historical process, human life in the universe, would mean you having to actually, like, do something. Uh, yeah. Like, do the refusal. Stop going to work. Go on general strike. Stop, start organizing. Um, not simply reproduce um, living that you the 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 mode of living that you've been inculcated into since childhood right um i mean i think a consciousness of that a true consciousness of that would like mean that you would have to stop driving your car and whatever eating meat or whatever right um and it's too hard it's easier to imagine oh well elon musk is going to colonize mars and that's going to be so cool even though it's never going to happen and no one's going to be there and right the earth is going to be a toilet or the Or, you know, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and whoever will go to Mars and they'll just, you know, Play fuck that pong. planet yeah. up in, in a different way than yeah. and leave uh, those of us who can't afford, uh, you know. The gerontological treatments. Yeah, exactly. Or the Martian af- yeah, uh, right. cruise those ships. Non-billionaires will just stay on Earth and uh, slowly, slowly suffocate. I mean, I think this is the sort of... Um, I think that thinking about, you know, putting putting Earth into the Mars, the the seven points, uh, the seven working points for a constitution on Mars. I think it can lead it can lead us to those like pretty despairing thoughts because of course you know you could you could decide not to um, drive or <laughs> you you know you can decide um, a whole bunch of things about the way that you as an individual function in the world right but none of those things will do anything right. compared to the mass scale of um, environmental destruction not to mention you know um, uh, the depredations of human yeah. life that exist. So of course it can't be like an individual. Right. This is the place where you as a, as a reader go from having to think, uh, but, but I actually think that this, the chapter is hopeful mm-hmm. partly because of that sort of the very ordinariness of these processes that we are talking about. Um, on the one hand, you know, the younger generations of Martians, they are different from us. They're not human. They're uniquely adapted to a different place, or they are human, but they're a different kind of human than we are. Um, but on the other hand, these are people doing completely recognizable right. things, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about what they want 
in the world and talking to other people and staying up too late drinking coffee while they try to like formulate their best versions of uh, ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, nothing here is crazy, right? right. This is all imaginable. Right. It's all possible. Right. Um, yeah. 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 No. no, but also, I mean, I think I was going to say this, maybe this is also where the left runs into trouble in terms of trying to organize because it's, we're so used to thinking individually and then to realize, oh, my individual actions aren't going to have any effect and to have any effect, I'm going to have to influence other people to do it and oh, that's so hard because people are fucking stupid, that kind of attitude. Yeah. Um, it's way easier for the, for not even the right, just the forces of inertia uh, and selfishness to say, oh, throw up your hands and, you know, turn inward, basically. Right. I mean, and, you know, the sort of, you know, we could think that the primary ideological effect produced by right. living under capital is that one is an individual producing huh. individually. Okay, I won't worry about it then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's nothing inevitable about capital. There's nothing inevitable about anything. Um, let's talk about William Fort. So I love, shall we? Yes, I love that this part begins um, on, on 378. It begins um, with uh, Maya coming in to say in Russian to, uh, to <laughs> Nadia, they're Terrans here, Americans. And Nadia repeats uh, Terrans and was afraid. Oh, it's such yeah. a great moment. The aliens have arrived. They've arrived at Dorsa Brevia. Yeah. And who, you know, who knows what they want. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's William Fort and his and, and some kind of cohort from Praxis that Art has invited but not heard from. Uh, Maya and others are very, and other Bogdanovists are very upset. Or no, no, no. The, Bogdan the Bogdanovists brought them in. Maya is very upset with Art. Um, you know, who, who, you know, who are you to say that they can come here and, and interfere with our process? Um and it's really interesting the role that Fort takes here um, that uh, he he's interested in what's going on. Nadia, of course, says, hear him out. And by the end of his kind of introduction on 382, um, some, so what do you want from us? Someone yelled from the back. Fort smiled. I want to watch. Uh, he's He's there to just sort of observe and figure out how they're doing this because as art insists over and over again praxis is different yeah um they want a different relationship with um nations than the other metanationals do yeah yeah i mean i i have such uh confused feelings about this i mean on the one hand we get you know we get fort coming in and there are a whole bunch of overlaps in the way that he thinks particularly his sort of eco economics ideas um with what Vlad and Ursula have worked on in their eco-economics. Um, so it's not like he's coming in with something entirely new right. or something that is from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so Praxis is supposed to be different. Mm -hmm. um, it, it has is to some extent a cooperative organization, despite the fact that it seems to still have um, a, a, a quite a clear uh, corporate hierarchy, hierarchy yeah. uh, with with. For, uh, fort at the top and when he comes in and he talks he's also like he's slightly incoherent and he gets like the names uh, he confuses the names of um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the transnationals uh, and a city on Mars yeah. right um, he looks at art as though he has no I idea love that. 
I mean, I can only imagine. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm so desperate to know which of these characters um, is based on Frederick Jameson, and um, <laughs> who was KSR's <laughs> dissertation advisor. And I, you know, just my experience with, uh, with uh, eminent professors. Uh, oh, who, they do always who, look at you like they have no idea. Who I mean, you are. not my professors, obviously, but like. I've heard stories <laughs> of like, you know, who are you again? Uh, you're one of my students. Um, I love that part. Uh, Art corrects him. That's Sabishi. What's that? Sabishi. You said Subarashi, which is the transnational. The settlement you went through to get here is called Sabishi. Sabishi means lonely. Subarashi means wonderful. Wonderful, Ford said, staring <laughs> curiously at Art. <laughs> then he shrugged and was off and running, an old Terran with a quiet but penetrating voice. Um, so he, part of the problem that he runs into, and it's interesting too, because Vlad and Ursula, um, and Coyote are all, and Marie and Marina are all tapping away on their wrist pads and discussing with each other because what he's describing as eco-capitalism sort of is a parallel development with their eco, eco-economics. Yes. Right. Um, but he's still sort of beholden to the old vocabulary of political economy of the earth, whereas it seems that Flat and Ursula and Marina and Coyote are actively trying to like create a new vocabulary, to create a new language. And, and I mean, and I think one question is, is it possible, you know, is it possible to use the language of economics um, as written? I mean, so his, you know, his, his sort of uh, theories revolve around the idea that uh, this is on 381. Nature is the bioinfrastructure. I mean, right. we talked about this when we met for, before. Mm-hmm. Nature is the bioinfrastructure, and people are referred to as human capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think one question is, I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be just language. Mm-hmm. And that is, is ideology. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. So, it, uh, So is it just that he, you know, hasn't gotten beyond this old-fashioned way of describing things? Right. Or is it that he's actually, he is actually describing, he's not describing something outside of capitalism but a new development within, within capitalism capital. but also i mean we can i mean i i think that the language as we're speaking the language conflations here are really interesting the idea that you know sabishi and subarashi are two completely opposed things but he's like okay whatever yeah you know yes names don't yeah, really yeah. mean that much yep. to him and um when we get to the next chapter actually and sax is relearning language it's a really interesting parallel because really concepts are much much more important for him for for both Sachs and for Fort here than 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 language and of course that also does neglect the ideological grounding of language right right, right. in order and 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 the possibilities that open up once you abandon the word capitalism and start thinking more broadly about and and human capital and bioinfrastructure and and start thinking in a different paradigm right uh, using different words to describe um, old things will automatically change the way you think about them, right? I, and the possibilities for thinking about them. And I think in that, I mean, in that regard, it's really important that um, it is uh, Sachs who sort of ends up interrogating yeah. Fort and asking him questions. And while Sachs is asking him questions, he keeps, because of his aphasia, substituting mm-hmm. words mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of the play of his slippages is also yeah. quite uh, quite telling for us to think potentially critically about what Ford says. But I, I wanted to, before that, I wanted to point out that um, uh, um, 
I think Jackie actually this we this is a rare moment where we see Jackie doing something that seems more productive than anything else. But on three eighty two, um, uh, Ford is saying, and in, in his his the first time he's there, he's saying, uh, "All I can tell you is, Praxis is very interested, and we're trying to build bridges between the World Court and all the powers on Earth." Why, Nadia asked. Fort raised his hands in a gesture just like one of Earth's. Yeah. Capitalism only works if there is growth. Uh, but growth is no longer growth, you see. We need to grow inward, to recomplicate. Jackie stood. But you could grow on Mars in classic capitalist style, right? I suppose, yes. So maybe that's all you want from us, right? A new market. This empty world you spoke of earlier. and Because that's his beginning in his earlier sort of Mars um, is empty. rambling talk. Earth is full, Mars is empty. Um, and, and Ford says... Well, we've been coming to think that the market is only a very small part of a community, and we're interested in all of it. But, you know, here we have this kind of, I mean, on the one hand, um, okay, so the market is being subsumed to the community, maybe. But maybe the other thing that this could mean is the community is being subsumed by market, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to say we're interested in all mm -hmm. of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, so th I, I think that the... I don't think that these questions are precisely resolved here, but mm -hmm. I think that these are real questions mm -hmm. about, um, I was thinking this partly because um, when he says capitalism only works if there's growth, right? And we know that this is true. This is core key to capital is it has to be able to make more of itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, when it reaches moments of contradiction or crisis, it has to figure out different ways mm -hmm. of making more of itself. You know, not that it is an actor, but you know what I mean. Uh, Feels like it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but growth is no longer growth, you see. So... On the full world of Earth, has capital done everything that it can do? We need to grow inward, he says, to recomplicate. And one of the things, and I, and I, you know, is this is this a right reading of this in the context of this novel? I'm not sure, but one of the things that that makes me think of is neoliberalism, yeah. right? Because of course, um, under the sort of um, uh, we might think of part of the move that neoliberalism makes is as um, uh, a kind of um, uh, an inward an inward version of capitalist growth right mm -hmm. in, in which each individual worker has to turn into a site of the production of um you know uh, she makes herself a site of her own investment yeah. right mm -hmm. Um, Self-care, uh, uh, you know, the workout industry. In, invest in yourself. Um, you know, it's all on you. Entrepreneurship. You, you are entirely isolated, entirely on your own, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. But so it, it, there is something to me that like, you know, are, are we hearing a kind of thought here about a way that it's possible for capital to change into something that then would not be capital. It seems to me as long as like it still drives toward the production of surplus value, it is capital. It still does rest on exploitation. Um, and yeah, it turns out capital has tons of resources for like inward growth, yeah. which I think is not exactly what Fort means, but I do that, that echo is there for me in that moment. I mean, inward growth, um, you could you might replace it with inward vampiricism or something like that, because the other thing that capitalism is, is extractive, right? Um, I mean, it's productive and extracted. It produces by extracting. And one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking in terms of inward growth is 
uh, Jody Dean's concept of communicative capitalism. Mm -hmm. Basically, Mm -hmm. all those little red dots that show up on your Facebook and Twitter profile when you get a new message or a new like, that's all money in the bank for uh, Jeff Zuckerberg and... uh, at Jack on Twitter, um, right? And <laughs> right, and it comes from your inner life, your friends, your inner life. the people that you love. You produce your it ideas. for ostensibly for free. You don't get uh, a wage for it, but you definitely feel, uh, you, you know, there's definitely a manipulation there. Uh, and the more I do it, the more drained I feel. I'm sure, yeah, like right, the more right. I feel something's being extracted from me. It is. It does operate on like an addictive. Uh, principle where the more you give, the less you get out of it. Um, and, you know, maybe podcasts are part of that economy as well. Uh, yes, they are. Oh, great. They absolutely are. <coughs> um, and we do get, um, uh, at the end, at, right after that little bit that I was just reading on 383, uh, uh, you know, they're all arguing. Many of them just don't want a Terran uh, transnational to be part of this. Coyote came by and said to Art, Don't tell me about how different Praxis is. That's the oldest dodge in the book. If only the rich would behave decently, then the system would be okay. That's crap. The system overdetermines everything, and it's the system that has to change. And this is where we get, Fort's talking about changing it, Art Mm -hmm. objected. But here, Fort was his own worst enemy with his habit of using classic economic terms to describe his new ideas. Uh, But there are a number of moments in this chapter where I... You know, Coyote is the person who has the, um, he's kind of in, in this way, like, um, he's like more like a one-liner version of Arcadi, mm-hmm, you know? I mm-hmm. mean, I don't think he and Arcadi agree on things mm-hmm. necessarily, but but Coyote comes in and has these moments of just like cutting through mm-hmm. what's happening by saying, ah, uh, but there is this kind of big issue here that everybody wants to sidestep. When you do have, I mean, one of the big uh points i think in this chapter too that we could you know if we're going to talk even more about it would be that the idea of well can change in a hierarchical system can change come from the top of the hierarchy or or do does system change uh depend merely upon good actors right the noble powerful man uh bestowing change upon the masses i mean to what extent does system change depend upon that and to what extent does system change to actually happen depend on the system changing itself rather than some uh, a good ruler like a Hillary Clinton or something yeah right right uh, coming in and you know tapping you on the tapping the system on the nose and waving a magic wand and changing things I was at the um there's a thing in Chicago a few weeks ago called the collaborative economy summit oh yeah cooperative economy summit and one of the best pan, one of the most interesting panels was a was what can uh, the political process do for the collaborative economy? And um, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa was there, and Aldermanic um, nominees or or what do you call them? Candidates. Candidates. Ugo O'Kier and the guy from Pilsen, I forget his mm-hmm. name, and this woman who's running for mayor of Chicago named Amaya. She's amazing. Is she? She was amazing. She wants to create a public bank where all the city's funds would be handled rather than sending millions of dollars to Wall Street in merely in fees. Tens of millions of dollars are spent in fees to Wall Street just to handle Chicago's money. Anyway. Awesome. One of the things that Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa has done is said, okay, there's $1.3 million that every alderman gets to spend dis- discretionarily and what i have done is decided that the people should get to decide on 
where that money gets spent. And my question, which I didn't answer, ask or, or get to ask was, well, you know, does it merely depend on a benevolent alderman? Like how, what if you don't have a benevolent alderman? Because right. like now he has set a precedent for spending it in specific ways that maybe other aldermen could use for not so great purposes, not so um, socially constructive sure. purposes, yeah. right? Um, that seems to be a fundamental contradiction in both in like democratic socialism in still relying upon um, benevolent leaders to do mm. the right thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, there's a fundamental contradiction between Fort and the entire process yes. that's yes. going on here that is quote unquote led by Nadia. Like I, you know, it's in quotes because she's not leading it. She's merely facilitating it. And it's, it's taking on a life of its own that a few that the triumvirate or whatever you want to call them are simply putting words to, right? Or that simply trying to create into concrete terms. So there's this, so that, that contradiction between a benevolent leader versus an actual systemic change created by systems of living. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so both the, um, the difference between an actual transformation in the mode of production uh, versus um, having uh, people who will continue just to be very rich anyway, create foundations where they give money right. to figure out how to um, wipe out malaria, right. which is, it's not that that's not a bad end. Right. Um, it's a good end. Right. Um, but also what kind of difference does that make? Or, or, of course, you know, the other version of that, which is the corporation that you can feel good about buying from because, um, you know, they give 15% of their profits back to the planet or whatever it is. I was going to say 1% of their yeah, profits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then the other thing I think that you're, you're saying that is, is really important is just thinking about um, how much we take how much we think that having leaders and questions about who our leaders are, um, we think of as, as sort of default mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. in politics. Um, or that's what politics is. It's figuring out who's going to be the leader, you know, who's going to be one of the, how many people are there on the Supreme Court who get to be on the Supreme Court for their entire lives and Nine. will decide the law of the land? How many yeah. people are there in the Senate who get to be in the Senate for endless amounts Chuck of Grassley time? Chuck Grassley is about, like, he's like a skeleton. He's just like, he, and he's got the brain of a skeleton too. Like, he is like out to lunch. He is, wow, holy crap, watching those, oh boy, these old people. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, so the, so these questions about, about leadership are hard because it it's not the case that we don't um, sometimes need people to teach us about something or explain something or sometimes get us organized or get us off of our asses to, like, do something. Um, and it's not that there aren't people... Um, and, you know, like Carlos Ramirez Rosa is a great example, who are incredibly charismatic and who you feel like could really, uh, yeah. you know, put put that person in front of enough right. people. And right. we're going to have a lot of people who's, you know, politics or who are super fired up and, you know, want to make things different. Yeah. Right. Um, but but, yeah, I think it's really right here that that we have if you can compare this chapter to the first chapter when we, we meet art. 
Art gets, um, you know, blindfold. Poor Art, who just is basically. <laughs> he's a hot, he's a prisoner, but also. Also a spy. A prisoner spy, and spy. Right. But, you know, he and he and a bunch of other people from Praxis subsidiaries get uh, flown to, you know, an yeah. undisclosed but highly attractive location. And and what's going on there? Well, there's another meeting that's taking place there. Um, Fort wants to get them to do like game simulations mm-hmm. and he wants them to argue and they're definitely really coming up with ideas and they're struggling over things there. But that's a scene in which um, the participants in it, at least a bunch of the participants, have no idea why they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually they're there to interact with their boss of bosses, right? right? The, you know, the CEO yeah. of CEOs, mm-hmm. um, the which, of which surely puts a certain amount of constraint on what it is that they are able to do or think, as we see in that chapter. Uh, the people there who appear to just be like hanging out and surfing and making the food actually turn out to be, you know, sub CEOs. They're spies. Yeah. So the whole, so the whole, so, you know, you can parallel that to Dorsa Brevia where everybody is coming at risk of their lives, right. um, out of hiding. Right. Um, I mean, into not the light, but into a, you know, into a space that is safe for them to work and talk together. Everybody is saying what they think. Um, not even in the case, you know, even in the case of the Reds, Anne is something of a figurehead, mm-hmm. but she's not their leader. Um, and later, even... you know, we'll hear her in the next chapter. I think we hear her. She says to Sachs, I didn't agree. I didn't agree with those points. And he's like, well, but the Reds did. And she's like, well, I didn't agree with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, there isn't that same. We don't have the same kind of structure at all. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that Ford is here um, uh, as a as a witness or wanting to watch, you know, we should be skeptical. Yeah. 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 It's also just remarkable. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but the, his description of what a metanational is. Um, oh, yeah. To Sachs. Um, the fact that it's a it's a company that's so large. I mean, we we have these companies, though, already. We've had them for probably at least 100 years. I mean, we can think about Nick, um, United Fruit in Nicaragua. Right. Right. Um, and any number of sort of giant transnational corporations that control uh africa right or or huge swaths of africa but the fact that praxis so praxis was initially invited by sri lanka to um sort of arbitrate between the tamils and the singalese and um marie so then he describes like how arms corps or subarashi philip uh an amex or whatever did did the same for for various places and then marina says has praxis done this as well in a way yes but we've tried to give the relationships a different nature we've dealt with countries large enough to make the partnership more balanced we've had dealings with india china and indonesia now this is 25 years ago that he's writing that that robinson is writing but that's three billion people. Yeah, that's like almost half the world's population. Yeah, and uh, and it's it, and you know Amazon and Apple are now the first trillion dollar companies. So it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that those companies could take over entire multiple countries um, in sort of smaller areas of the world. And of course, Apple Apple's deal with China is is you know crucial. Yeah. Um, to their economy, so. Um, I would just be so curious to sort of do a deep historical dive into 1994 and find out what companies were doing what with what small uh, small countries to um, to affect this kind of quote unquote public private partnership. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, here we we you, you definitely see that the um, 
as as is appropriate to the early 90s um japanese mm-hmm. companies are huge mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. which obviously if you're writing this now you would swap <laughs> china in for japan which there. is what he's done with red moon his forthcoming yeah. novel yeah um uh um I think we also see a mix of um in the in the names anyway consolidated mm-hmm. Amex X Arms Corps is my favorite one though yeah. it's just blunt. Um yeah. I, you know I think this the senses uh of um uh uh petroleum and oil yeah. right as a as a dominant that might still be a dominant um mm-hmm. we would now think uh, yeah about about tech companies a New York Times headline when Apple's valuation broke what was it a trillion a trillion yeah those are dollars yeah. uh, uh the new york times headline is something like apple valuation breaks one trillion and then the subhead says something like raises fears of growing inequality <laughs> the failing new york times I mean, I mean just like a little fucking late to the yeah. game guys the new york oh god i hate I'm the sorry, new york I'm times i'm starting to get nervous about growing inequality now that Gee. apple is valued at an huh. unimaginable huh. non-existent the amount of new money new york times right <laughs> they're based in new york where there are like fuckloads of homeless people all over the place and they're and like no one can afford rent on on like $75,000 a year like what the f- okay sorry yeah. okay yeah. um Inequality might grow. It might grow. Hmm. I don't know. Um, so I would love to be at that seminar of Fort and Sachs doing a joint TED talk. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so cool, I think. My favorite one is... Uh, crack the eggs? Uh, crack the eggs. I mean, domes. I thought that was a good one. And then and then Fort is weak on historical detail. I, I don't really remember what happened in 61. I don't yeah. think we had anything to do with that. Um, but... Uh, the uh, practices different are declared, but the system is the system. Coyote mm-hmm. insisted from the back of the room. Fort shrugged. We make the system, I think. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, but not under, but under limited circumstances, right? Um, Coyote only shook his head. Sachs said, we have to steal it to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Well, the other good one is, what is prax? I mean, I guess this is all of them are good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Good, these are good novels. <laughs> what does Praxis want from men? Bam. From Mars, then. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that description of the meta. So the the distinction um, of the meta nationals from the transnationals is that the meta nationals are actually taking over com- um, or, uh, countries rather than using countries as the flag of convenience relationship. They're actually taking over the debt and the um, eternal economy. And mm-hmm. and Ford says that the difference with Praxis in its dealings with, as you were pointing out, these enormously large countries, India, China, Indonesia. The difference with Praxis is that they're not telling them uh, what their economic policy has to mm-hmm. be, right? So they're not, so they have this gigantic scale like the meta nationals all have, um, but they're kind of less intervention, interventionist. Um, and, and he presents them as something like uh, a resource to mm-hmm. go along with the world court to go along with the world court, Switzerland, and some other bodies outside the emerging metanational order. So here we have a corporation that is interested in reproducing itself and also making more of itself. Right. Um, that is positioning itself to be something like a world court, um, to be the new version of... So it can be a negotiator on the behalf of these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem of its own interest 
remains, right? Well, yeah, it's still it's still a capitalist corporation, so it's it's taking a different strategy than the other metanationals to position itself against those metanationals and to create a new world order in its own image so that it can benefit um, and subject those metanationals to its will, essentially. Right. right. Um, uh, Make them all learn how to surf. Yeah. Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> I'm terrified of surf. I would not go surfing. I'm scared of the ocean. You're scared um, of the ocean? Well, I'm, I, I love the ocean, but I'm, I don't want to go. I mean, my biggest, I don't want to get eaten by a whale. Uh, don't you think that would be like number one best way to go? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And we're all going to die. So eaten is, by a whale is pretty high on my list of <laughs> this is positive not, ways to go. <laughs> not the first time we have said we're all going to die on this podcast. Uh, uh, so should we talk about the end of the chapter? Let's talk about the end of the chapter. Uh, so we, we talked a bit about the way in which we we get after the presentation of the um, the working points um, the arguments continue. It feels like an anticlimax. Uh, Nadia continues to feel uh, alternately good. Um, we have the like very sweet moment of Sax, Nadia, and Maya all objecting to something that Art says simultaneously oh, yeah. and making Anne laugh. Uh, you know, we but 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 there is something that's very low key here. A lot of work has done. Um, but it's only the beginning. Coyote mm-hmm. points out, you know, it's it's easy to say things. The question is always, right. what do you do? And then the chapter ends, so starting, I guess, on 394, um, with a really interesting version of of action or of doing something, which is we end with Hiroko, uh, as usual, out of the blue, 100% <laughs> performance artist. Random! Uh, <laughs> she's just going to... She's going to make it happen, uh, just beginning this kind of, um, I mean, I don't know if you call it a ritual if it's new. Right. Is it a ritual the first time it happens? Well, it feels like a ritual to everybody. It feels like they've done it. It, they, it says, like, they feel like, oh, on, on top of 395, in what felt like the millionth repetition of a million-year-old ritual, something everyone had coded in their genes and had practiced all their life, right? Um, which speaks to Robinson's belief that there is a kind of there is a human nature at the core, yeah. right? Yeah. That that is on our biological biological level. That you know, it's a it's a primate thing um, that has been enculturated somehow and and expresses itself in various kind of mass uh, events, exercises, spectacles, right? Ornaments. Right. I mean, I think it's not, I mean, I think we have some sense of this has to do with the human as animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think it's not totally, the sense is not totally of this as a primate thing. I, I mean, I think it is a sense of it as this, as a very old human mm-hmm. thing, you know, so that we're, I mean, and and I don't, I don't think it's pushed very hard. So, But making that distinction too, it goes back to the distinction between having a forest preserve a, a oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And having, uh, you know, having nature and culture when they're all the same. Like Nadia said, not it says on three ninety four, Nadia walked along holding hands with art with Nergal and Art, feeling happy. They were animals after all, no matter where they chose to live. So there's this collapse of like this thing that seems deeply cultural. She identifies it as being an animal, right? So there's this kind of like conflation or this deeply human thing which we would say, oh, this is some kind of religious ritual. She says we're animals, right? Yeah, but I, I think that, I, I guess what I, I guess I think that it is not, it doesn't seem to me quite as simple as the claim is, um, this is not as simple an idea about um, 
the animal and the human or even, you know, the deep story of our human nature as uh, we have this particular like reproductive biology or we're constituted in a particular way through a set of evolutionary processes. Um, and it does seem to be the case that the ritual, which um, uh, uh, Nadia thinks of as a fertility mm-hmm. rite, um, even though it's not 100% clear that it is a fertility rite, at least not in what we generally would think of that as meaning. I mean, I, it, I, I think... I think the case here is not, or the the point that Robinson is making or what he's reaching toward is not like an evolutionary biological account of what it is to be human, sure. um, but one that actually takes um, both like, you know, embodied uh, living and connection to others um, and enculturation mm-hmm. quite seriously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Um I mean, and also, like, the whole thing, but also, of course, like, it's weird to think of it that way, too, because this is something that Hiroko is inventing, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows how long she's been planning this. You know she's been planning this for so long. That's in keeping with her strange mix of, um, you know, highly developed, um, like, understanding of ecological processes, uh, her... uh, her account of what Mars is, mm-hmm. her reading of, you know, uh, Hildegard of Bingen and mm-hmm. Veriditas, um, and her, and like her Shintoism. Plus, I think here we get back to the whole Minoan matriarchy mm-hmm. thing yeah. a little bit. Sure. Um, but so after all of this debate and all of the um, conversation and all of these people uh, standing up and, and talking and trying to convince people of other things, we get naked Hiroko, uh, painted green, yeah walking into the room followed by Ariadne and Charlotte Charlotte who's the economic theorist right mm-hmm. uh and you know, the the constitutional scholar she, oh she's a constitutional scholar right and several other Minoan women <laughs> uh uh and also Michelle uh, good old Michelle yeah. he's like he's happy to be there with the ladies um uh, they drape Hiroko with strings of bright red flowers uh they sing the names of Mars um as as John Boone uh, taught uh, Jackie also of course um, you know either was already naked or you know strips She's, down to join drop <laughs> to of a join hat. in drop of a hat this girl uh, they all walk to uh, some of the some of the reds uh, paint themselves red and anyway they all end up in the right. pool together um, Maya swam through the shallows and knocked Nadia deeper into the pond with an impetuous mm-hmm. hug. Hiroko is a genius, she said in Russian. She may be a mad genius, but a genius she is. Mother goddess of the world, Nadia said, and switched English as she plowed through the warm water to a little knot of the first 100 in the Sebishi Isi. Isi. Um, I just like, it's such a... Uh, if the like the beginning of where we were talking about is the Terrans arrive and you know everybody is afraid about the Terrans arriving, here we have the, the chapter ends with this different arrival, mm-hmm. um, this crazy ritual um, that does end up in this familiar thing. They're all bathing together mm-hmm. basically and hugging each other and reaffirming all kinds of connections. Um, but again, you know, here it seems to matter that this conference ends with this moment of spiritual yeah. connection and mystery right and and mystery yeah where, the, yeah where as you pointed out i don't know if we were recording or if it was beforehand where 
somebody, somebody from the crowd says, well, but this here is religion. And I like all the pretty bodies, but mixing state and religion is a dangerous business, right? Um, it's also, that's right before the part where all of Nadia and Maya's students come up to them and give them <laughs> hugs naked. I know. What a nightmare. Oh my God. Um, oh my God. That's Avital Ronell, anyone? <laughs> Hello. Oh God. Um, but I like, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me or really effective to me in this is that throughout the whole quarter, I mean, the whole, the whole quarter, <laughs> the quarter just started. Throughout the whole chapter here, um, the chapter has been devoid of color actually there hasn't been any color description yeah. really here whereas the rest of the books are so full of like colorful descriptions and color plays such an important part and suddenly a green woman appears yeah right and then uh, a, a red woman is produced you know with some dye that is just found somewhere and then of course it all runs off and it's just brown yeah and they're just swimming in basically shit yeah right? <laughs> i mean like it, it but it's this it, it is this kind of you know revelation this return to color where the whole chapter has been this kind of very sober it, it's been just dominated by talk and concepts and and grayness and shades of gray and black yep. and white yep. and suddenly now like color just re-emerges and uh is so important and uh again sort of life affirming and uniting of people um uh and, and uh you know reaffirms its its sort of important you know, place in the visual spectrum uh, beyond just the realm of like ideas. Yeah, um, right, right. I mean, I think the the sort of um, the impulsive, the instinctive, the felt, the unthought, mm -hmm. and also the also the transcendent. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah. And and that comment from the person in the pool who's like, "Well, I like the pretty bodies, but you shouldn't mix uh, religion and politics." I mean, you know. It, it is telling that that person both objectifies um, the objectifies the nakedness, mm -hmm. right? It's about like, right. you know, they look good or whatever. Um, at the same time as they seem to mistake what's actually really, I would say, not religion, mm -hmm. um, but a way of connecting people together um, that acknowledges that there are people are more than brains, mm -hmm. Um Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. But it's so, I, I think that this is such a, um, I think that thinking that this chapter and, and Hiroko also produces a ceremony at the beginning of it too. And thinking that those right. things are, we shouldn't just be thinking about the content of the arguments of the chapter. Um, but also that they're framed by these moments of ceremony of ritual, uh, of invocation of stuff that, you know, is not amenable to uh, logical thought you know, that there, there's a dialectic in the chapter itself, mm -hmm. right? And part of what we should be thinking is, is between those things, the, the problems of what is to be done, mm -hmm. um, the question of how to take action, the question of how to understand that we are already connected. It's not that we have to become connected, but we're already connected. That all of those things, um, maybe we can't only understand through um, uh, argument and debate, yeah. but that we also come to understand them by putting that argument and debate next to other kinds of human practice. It's also just, an, I mean, going along with that, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that yes, they've come to an agreement that's put down in words that we can all point to this sort of third thing that we've all created together. But then at the same time, there are these 
weird ritual ceremonies that everybody experiences differently and that everyone will like, we'll all remember the Dorsa Brevia agreement, the document that we've produced, but we'll all remember these weird things that happened as well. Yes. And we'll all remember them differently. And they all meant different things to different people. Maya immediately acknowledges that Hiroko is a genius. Nadia says she's the mother goddess of the world. This perv says I like all the pretty <laughs> bodies. Fort says we should have should have run the meeting like this the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Freaking like yeah. old pervy <laughs> weirdo. Um, and and Jackie of course is still upset that anyone could ever be compared to John Boone. Yeah. Um, uh, I I do like that moment that um, I guess Maya you know, says sort of ends the chapter at the end by saying, ends the chapter at the end by saying we could have used our Frank and Arcady and John here because they would have known exactly what to do, which also, again, like speaks to that like authoritarian impulse in people, even someone as free spirited and, and free willed as Maya and brilliant as Maya says, Oh gosh, I wish Frank were here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why, you know, we don't, you know, if we've proven anything, we don't need Frank. We don't need John. We don't need Arcadi. Like right. people, we can do this ourselves. And and also they they're so deeply there too. Yeah, I mean right. that's that's the other they're thing. You know, there. not only in the you know not only because uh, the first so many members of the first hundred are there, but also and not only because when they chant the names of Mars, that that is something that is a John Boone mm-hmm. thing. Um, There's a whole group called the, the Bogdanovists. It, right, right. Because their ideas are there, their presence is there, they're part of the history. I mean, none of that is none of that is gone. Right. But I do like, one of the things that I also like about this chapter that is that we see in it how much the first hundred care for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's nice that we get that moment of Anne laughing. Um but that we see them together, that we see Nadia and Maya, who have been friends for an incredibly long time at this point, friends and sometimes enemies, but mostly friends. Um, but that we see their affection and their care and that that sense that of shared experience um, and that you share experience with people who aren't necessarily like you, but mm-hmm. that that's something that matters. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I, re- I like that here, that, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're not a unified political force mm-hmm. and they're not the leaders, um, but they are bound to each other, right? I mean, there's a lot of, like, love in the chapter, mm-hmm. which I think is a really, uh, the, that's not what you'd expect from the chapter that's about writing the Constitution. The image, yeah, well, but it's what you would need to write a, a good Constitution is a lot of love. The image of, um, there were Anne and Sachs standing by side by side, Anne tall and thin, Sachs short and round, looking just like they had in the old days in the baths of Underhill, debating something or other, Sachs talking with his face all screwed up in concentration. Nadia laughed at them. At the, at, Nadia laughed at the sight, splashing them. Right? <laughs> just so childlike. Yeah. Um, and, then I, and, then, and then with that, uh, the final words of the chapter I, I love because it's still despite all that they've been through and agreed upon, it still leaves le- ends on an ambiguous note, right? An ambivalent mm-hmm. note. This time, it will be different this time, Kasai insisted. Nadia says, we will see, right? There, you know, don't put your faith in the future. Yeah. Don't put your faith in the past. Let's just take it one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good start, but um, there's nothing is guaranteed, right? We still have to work on it. Yeah.
Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Well, we'll continue to work on it next week <laughs> on Marooned on Mars. Oh, all right. I nice. did my DJ voice. That was really good. Thank you. You should do more of that. Oh, good. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I probably should. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very serious. Okay, I will. Um, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And goodbye. We'll see you next week. Oh, next week is a Maya... No, it's a sax chapter. Sax. Such a great chapter. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's called Social Engineering. Social Engineering. A lot, a lot going to happen in a very little amount of time. Yeah, it's short. Very short. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye.